good, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for coming here in this uh, cold and windy day and sharing with us a few thoughts and ideas about Libya. Um, lately, I was having a kind of a groundhog day sense talking about Libya because I, I always find myself whenever I have to present these, these, these events to repeat the same thing. We are at a juncture place, we are at an inflection point, we are in a moment of crisis, it's a decisive uh, turning point about Libya. And the next two weeks will be vital, the next two weeks will be essential, the next week will be fundamental in understanding where we are going, what's happening to the country. And this has been going on for, for, for the past few years. In, in this sense, uh, I have this Groundhog Day experience. I'm saying the same things. And every time I think, but this is different, because this time it is really an inflection point. This time it is really vital. This is really an important moment. And it is, because uh, there is a lot of confusion under, uh, under the sun, as they say, in this moment in Libya. We do not know how many governments there are there and uh, how the situation will, will and if it will be solved. And, and how to disarm the militias, how to bring back some, 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 some principles of law and order to the country. We are very fortunate that we have one of the best experts that, that are around, uh, which is Claudia Gazzini coming, out, ca, 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 coming all the way from Italy to explain to us, uh, share with us her, her, her opinion and her vision about what is going on in Libya. Uh, Claudia is the senior fellow, is the senior analyst for, for, for Libya, the, the crisis group. You have her bios uh, out there, so I, I won't waste any time going through that. Just to tell you that it's one of the, my the colleagues that I esteem the most, whose, trust, whose judgment and analytical skills I trust the, the most. The format I would like to follow is that Claudia will, will come here to the podium and speak for about 15, 20 minutes, or as, I told her as long as she wants to give her, her remarks and, and, and spread uh, her thoughts. And, and then we will open it up for you to, to ask questions and to have a debate with her. Please take, 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 take advantage of it, and uh, let's, let's uh, begin. Claudia, thank you want to come to the Thank you, Karim. Uh, earlier, somebody said that you're, one is never really an expert on, uh, on, uh, on Libya because things are so confusing and so fast moving that you know, once you think you understand the situation, everything changes. So expertise is, uh, is difficult to come by. Um, but I am somebody who has been following Libyan affairs for a long time. I've been analyst for the International Crisis Group following Libya since 2012. For those who don't know Crisis Group, we are an NGO that is proud to be uh, field-based. We make research on the ground of com countries that are in conflict and post-conflict, and we make implementable policy recommendations on the basis of, those, of that fieldwork. In a country such as Libya, doing fieldwork means essentially talking to politicians from the two rival governments, rival parliaments, uh, militias, uh, smugglers, jihadists, uh, social, uh, civil society activists as well, but it means a huge array of different interlocutors. I mention this because um, being still until today 
present on the ground, and uh, I've been going to Libya all along when, after the embassies retreated from Tripoli, I've uh, been going to the east, to the west, and even to the south in this past year. Having access to, uh, to the country and to people there sometimes gives us a different perspective of the reality, uh, sometimes more critical. Uh, than the diplomats that, uh, that follow Libya. Um, an example of this was our position taken in December uh, regarding the implementability of the UN-backed uh, uh, political agreement. Uh, in December, on the basis of our conversations with a wide spectrum of Libyan stakeholders, we at Crisis Group took a critical view of the deal's potential and warned that that agreement lacks sufficient Libyan buy-in and attempting to push that agreement without a broader support on the ground could doom it to failure and possibly precipitate the situation. Three months have passed since that agreement was signed and unfortunately, and I say this Sincerely, unfortunately, Libya still does not have a government of national unity in place. <coughs> Libya remains institutionally divided. The Libyan political agreement, which is the UN-backed plan signed by a group of politicians on the 17th of December and then backed by the Security Council later that month, was supposed to put an end to the political crisis that has divided this oil-rich country since mid-2014. It was also supposed to lead to the creation of a government of national accord. But despite the ongoing tireless efforts of the UN Special Representative Martin Kobler, Libya today still does not have that government of national unity in place. The international, internationally backed presidential council, uh, a body of nine men representing different political factions in Libya, continues to operate from outside of the country first in Tunisia, more recently in Morocco. Uh, a sizable number of members of, two, of Libya's two rival parliaments continue to oppose that Libyan political agreement. I also note that some of those early backers of that agreement are now backtracking, and some of them are actually calling for a complete reset of the presidential council and of the agreement itself. So in short, Libya d is still a divided country, and the chances of implementing that UN-backed deal, from my point of view, remain scant. Even in the almost optimistic of scenarios, the agreement will take time to be implemented, and the new government will face hurdles in being able to take seat in Tripoli. This is deeply regrettable, as I said, because it's clear that most Libyans do want a government of national unity, and their living conditions is deteriorating day by day. Libya's economy is also reaching a critical point. Libya is an oil-rich country, as you all know, but over the past two and a half years, attacks on oil fields, pipeline, export facilities, coupled with the drop in global oil prices, has deteriorated the state of the country's finances. Production dropped, crude oil production, on which Libya depends on for almost 100% of its revenues. Production has dropped from 1.8 million 
uh, in, 20, in early 2011 to about 300,000 today. This is rapidly draining the country's foreign currency reserves, which are estimated to be somewhere between maybe 50, 60 billion, although uh, apparently a figure of the Tripoli-based central bank puts that number a bit higher to 70-something billion. But in any case, it's less than half of what, the reserves are less than half of what they used to be just two years ago. Across the country, there are increasingly cash shortages. Fuel and medicine are difficult to come by. Um, and food prices have increased exponentially. The Libyan dinar is worth a third uh, of the official rate on the currency black market. Let me rephrase. On the official um, exchange rate, uh, it takes 1.2 Libyan dinars to purchase $1, but it is impossible to obtain foreign currency through the official channels, so most people go to the black market. On the black market, uh, uh, the dollar is exchanged at 3.7, 3.8 Libyan dinars for a dollar. So it's three times more expensive to purchase foreign currency. And Libya is a country that imports most of its good, most of its food even, so people depend heavily on foreign <coughs> currency. Um, smuggling of ordinary goods, but also weapons and people, is thriving, as is corruption. So in short, a parallel war economy is taking over, and the state is heading towards bankruptcy. Further compounding Libya's economic problems is the institutional divide uh, of Libya's major economic and financial institutions. As you know, the country's three major financial and economic institutions, the Central Bank of Libya, the National Oil Corporation in charge of managing the country's assets, and the country's sovereign wealth fund, LIA, uh, have been sort of, their management has been fractured along more or less the political lines that fractured the country since 2014. Um, the two most important financial institutions, the central bank and the NOC, remain physically under the control of the Tripoli authorities, but the Tobruk-based parliament and the Beda government uh, have established their own management chain of the two. The two sides also continue to contest the ownership and the management of the assets of the Libyan Sovereign Wealth Fund. Still today, there is a major lawsuit taking place unfolding in London over who is supposed to be considered the international, internationally recognized manager of the Libyan Sovereign Wealth Fund. This, the country's security landscape is also dire. Libya's two rival military coalition, Libya Dawn in the West and Operation Dignity in the East, allied respectively with, these, with the two political institution, institutions have become increasingly fragmented internally, and the leadership of both coalitions is contested. In the West, the rifts are largely between pro-government of national unity forces and anti-government of national unity forces. In the East, uh, similar fractures also exist. Uh, the Libyan National Army, which operates mainly in eastern Libya and is backed by the House of Representatives in Tobruk, um, is internally divided. 
despite their public attempts to minimize these divisions and these rifts for the sake of public consumption from my point of view, a number of commanders of the LNA, the East-based army, uh, appear to be breaking ranks with Haftar, uh, General Khalifa Haftar, the person nominally uh, in charge of the LNA. There are, of course, opportunities to capitalize on these divisions, create a more malleable pro-deal security um, coalition uh, versus a more hardliner coalition. Um, but one should also tread carefully. Uh, I think greater fragmentation could foster local conflicts, especially if Libya's neighbors continue uh, to use uh, their allies in the country to foster their own personal rivalries. So it's critical for the international supporters of the Libyan government of national accord to make a concerted effort to bring the country's security actors in support of such a government. Um, the absence of a security track as part of the UN-led process has been particularly garling in this respect, and we think it's an error that should be rectified. Um, despite the UN uh, arms embargo, new firearms and ammunition continue to make their way to the country, in part provided by regional powers that are backing one side or the other. This brings us to the question then of extremist arms group in the country, which unfortunately have proliferated since 2011. More focus needs to be directed at finding a security roadmap for the country. Of course, everybody's attention now is directed at the Islamic State, which has made important advances in Libya in 2015 and is using Libya as its new front of operations. We know that the Islamic State has been able to build a base in Sirte, um, a former Gaddafi stronghold I, was, I visited only last March. I think I was one of the last foreigners to, to set foot in Sirte uh, before there was a complete takeover by uh, Islamic State affiliates. From there, they've gradually, over the course of 2015, managed to expand control of a 200-kilometer stretch of the Libyan coast towards a small town called Benjawad, which is just on the edge of where Libya's main oil uh, export facilities are located. ISIS supporters also control a few neighborhoods in Benghazi, Libya's eastern largest city, and are present in the outskirts of Derna. We know also that they've managed to carry out deadly attacks in the west of the country, and ISIS cells uh, appear to exist in other towns, such as Sabrata, Beni Walid, and Jufra. So based on all this information and this landscape uh, of the reality in Libya, what, what can be done? What is the best course of action for, for the US? Um, I think it's understandable that the US and the international community at large are extremely worried and focused on the ISIS threat because of the potential threat it poses. Some have talked of military intervention to prevent this group from turning Libya into a platform from which it could attack neighboring countries or southern European countries. Um, and it is understandable that this anxiety expressed by European countries and Libyan neighbors um, uh, should lead to policy measures. 
But one should also proceed with caution in this respect. Rushing into international military intervention in Libya to counter ISIS would be short-sighted and would probably backfire. Such an intervention should be discreet. We're not saying that there, nothing should be done. I think that would be also very dangerous to just sit and watch. But whatever intervention takes place should be discreet, measured, and certainly linked to the political strategy aimed at bringing Libyan factions together under a single government. This has to remain the overarching goal. A large-scale air or ground campaign would likely create more problems than it would resolve, particularly if it's perceived as aiding one side in, uh, over the other. Uh, it's particularly important that if we do have a unity government uh, in place, it's formed, or uh, a presidential council that sits in Tripoli, it's important that these government or council not be pushed to issue a formal invitation of any type for military intervention. Because of the fragility of the political process, this would enable spoilers to accuse their pro-peace rivals, from our point of view, of enabling a foreign occupation of Libya and could provoke a nationalist backlash. Of course, any effective counter-terrorism uh, approach to Libya to, to contain ISIS will require Libyan allies. And this should be a Libyan-led effort. And the best way to ensure that this takes place is a dialogue between Libyan security actors. As I stated earlier, this is a sorely missing component of the UN-led process um, and ever more necessary. So while working towards achieving a, a political government of national unity, it is important to help the local actors, local military actors, to uh, start a conversation, build bridges on the ground. The absence of a security sector dialogue has been one of the problems throughout this past year and is from our point of view, until today, one of the reasons why the December agreement, political agreement, is still failing in its implementation. There was insufficient um, preparation in securing the support of the security factions in the country, especially in the East. In the months preceding that agreement, the UN made weak, and from our point of view, sometimes contradictory arrangements to set up a security plan for Tripoli, the idea being that the government of national accord was supposed to be based in Tripoli, therefore you had to secure the green zone or the capital to enable the return of the government there. Uh, and it obtained the UN and international uh, actors also obtained the backing of some armed groups from Misrata, uh, from Tripoli and from Zintan. But the broader military divides were really never bridged and rivalries between the various local factions were never overcome. Disagreements on the appointment of top security uh, officials continue to undermine the political deal until today. 
the famous controversy over Article Number Eight of the El of the Libyan Political Agreement, and uh, the uh, opposition of pro Haftar supporters to the nomination of Mahdi Bargati as the nominated Minister of Defence, are clear indications of this. So, to have a chance. Um, more resources need to be set aside to pursue what crisis group has long advocated for, a security track dialogue. Similar strategic mistakes were made with the economy. The question of how to better manage, secure, and distribute Libya's resources and wealth cannot wait. Some issues can be, can be taken care of through the UN-led negotiations or even parallel initiatives, pending a more formal review of the government of national unity when it does take seat. Um, a short-term requirement to stabilize Libya's finances would be an agreement by the, the management of the rival institutions on two broad issues. First, what measures can be taken to increase oil and gas production in order to replenish state coffers, and how to maintain a unified, coherent financial system. These issues have become as urgent as ever, um, especially now that the five-year mandate of the Tripoli-based central bank governor is due to expire. There's the risk of a political contestation uh, over who will appoint his successor. So the Libyan conflict, from my point of view, and I hope you agree, is multidimensional and extremely complex. The political dimension cannot be dealt with separate from the economic dimension, and both are really dependent on the security dimension. Um, so the international community at this point in time, as it prepares to uh, lay out an anti-ISIS strategy should not repeat those same mistakes made in December when it decided to push ahead with a political agreement with insufficient preparation, announcing a unity government when really no unity was yet achieved and no body of any sort was in a position to govern. Rushing things and ignoring the crucial task of making necessary security and economic arrangements prior to any deal will only serve to undermine efforts to stabilize Libya and could impede the creation of a common front against the Islamic State. What is needed is a more concerted effort by all stakeholders on all these three fronts simultaneously. I think the US has a major role to play here, particularly in ensuring that regional actors that are enmeshed in the conflict also play a more constructive role. So in conclusion, neither forcing a political deal alone nor implementing a strictly counter-terrorism strategy in Libya will be successful if either is carried out in isolation. There need to be simultaneous efforts to overcome Libya's economic fractures, build bridges in a fragmented security landscape, and build confidence in this presidential council and its future proposed government of national accord. Unfortunately, uh, PM designates Serraj's limited presence in the country and his l low media outreach have done very little to help him win that confidence. Only these simultaneous efforts can prepare the ground in Libya for an inclusive, constructive, and hopefully lasting agreement to return the country to a united and peaceful Libya. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Claudia. I promise I would be good. So I would, uh, instead of starting asking tens of questions myself, I will pass it first to you and then maybe intervene a little bit later. So uh, please take advantage of this opportunity to have Claudia with us. And uh, if you have any comment or any question. I'm sure there are a lot of people who disagree with me here. Actually, I know it. But, so I welcome also your critical remarks. That's Chuck. Please uh, introduce yourself and try, try, try to limit the comments to. Uh, thank you. My name is Chuck Dietrich with the U.S. Oh. Business Association. Um, thank you very much. Um, could you elaborate a little more on your, your comments or your perspective of how, let's assume we dedicate sufficient resources to implementing a fulsome security track sort of how you go about that. The political agreement looks good on paper and it addresses a lot of things, including the creation of this security sort of council of, of security officials. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd be interested in your perspective on that, if that's the way to go, um, and what you would recommend to sort of implement that suggestion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Should we take a few questions or I answer one at Let's a time? Let's answer one. We need to answer this. Okay. Um, warm up. Okay. Um, on the paper, the, 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 security, the Council for the Implementation of Security Measures that was created and in, in, uh, was nominated and appointed in mid-January uh, is, uh, is great. That's what you need, a body of a dozen or so people to coordinate and make future security arrangements. Regrettably, however, um, this council that was, or committee that was nominated, seems to be focused exclusively on the capital, on security arrangements in the capital. Just by looking through those names of the appointees, you recognize individuals who have a stake in the security in Tripoli, uh, but aren't a bridge to, for security arrangements elsewhere. Now, this is a strategic choice by the Presidential Council and some of its backers to think that the, you know, f first comes first, Tripoli comes first. First, you need to secure the capital in order to allow the government to return there. Um, I don't see it that way. I think this council should have been a good would have been a good opportunity to appoint individuals that represent the various fractures across the country and then uh, delegating therefore subcommittees to deal with uh, local dialogue between the various groups. So once again, I think this is a, a, mis a repeat of the mistakes made in 2015 of again focusing too much on Tripoli, focusing too much on, on liberating the capital and not in a taking a holistic approach to uh, dialogue between the security groups in the country. Now, now, this is not to say that nothing is happening across the country. There are various NGOs like ours that are engaged in reaching out to armed groups and, and various factions. Um, but it, I think they're doing it very much in isolation with one another without a, a, a common trajectory. I would have liked uh, Paulo Serra, oh, poor man, he has a very, very difficult job, the, the UN um, uh, appointed uh, person to flank, that, that's flanking Cobbler in making security arrangements. Um, I would have liked uh, 
his mission to take the lead and coordinate all um, um, initiatives of engagement with security actors on the ground. Um, there's been a limit to that because of access to Libya. You know, his flights have been denied and landing rights have been denied. So the UN as a formal institution that has to engage formally with the actors on the ground maybe cannot do that. But other groups can engage, but I feel that those group, those NGOs or informal actors that can engage on the ground are, are not doing it with a common, in a common direction and are not doing it with enough resources. I mean, even the UNSMIL mission that is working on security sector arrangements throughout 2015 before the arrival of Kobla had very limited human resources. I mean, it was a team of four or five people flanking Salim Rad at the time. Why? Why? There needs to be more human capital. There needs to be more outreach with security groups on the ground because unlike the politicians, the commanders of the militias don't fly out to you. You know, <laughs> They don't hang out in Tunis hotels. They're very hesitant to leave their territory. They send, envo they send friends, envoys, deputies, uh, but don't go out there. But you need to go out to them. When I went to Benghazi in, in, uh, uh, in the outskirts of Benghazi in November, there were a series of military commanders that were eager to, to talk to me simply because nobody else shows up there to talk to them. So more of that needs to happen. First of all, I think some of us actually agree quite a bit with what you said. Um, but let me, let me ask you for your reaction to the number of people, and uh, people have suggested that fundamentally the issue is one of distribution of national wealth. That at the end of the day, it's all about the stuff mm -hmm. and who has the stuff. And that in fact, um, Salah al-Badi and others were motivated as much in their raid on um, the airport in Tripoli by the desire to rid it of the Zintan who were using it in their view for extortion, smuggling, uh, kidnapping of other people who were trying to travel out of it. And that you will really never arrive at any kind of solution. People won't, that things, that alliances in Libya are so fluid, transactional and opportunistic in the absence of a central authority who they believe will be fairly distributive. So. It's a kind of a chicken and an egg thing. Some people have said you will never have security or be able to really bring aboard the militias and others until everybody knows that they're going to get a piece of that Libyan pie mm -hmm. um, that's quickly going away. It's being dissipated by this. So how do you address that issue? What would your advice be to Martin Kobler if you had you know, 15 minutes alone with him mm -hmm. and said, before you are ever going to be able to secure any agreement, you need to mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. It is a lot about uh, access to the resources and access to Libyan wealth and obtaining part of that wealth. But the reason why individuals are individuals and groups are fighting over it is essentially because they don't trust the other person to share that wealth, right? And I think we have a perfect example of this lack of trust in the dynamics that are occurring in the east of Libya today. Now you have a lot of people in the east of Libya that still today support this attempt to create a functioning national oil corporation based in the east, securing oil, you know, contracts for oil sales, um, uh, 
And there are a lot of people across the society in the East that think that these are not hardliners per se. They're normal people. In fact, there's even a member of the presidential council, Fatima Jbari, that is amongst the avid supporters of the idea of promoting still this NOC in Beda. Why is this? Essentially because they don't trust that if the government were to move back to uh, Tripoli, they don't trust that they will be getting a share of the resources that they have been receiving and benefiting from over these past year and a half. You know, in fact, the problem in Eastern Libya amongst those who oppose the deal is not a problem of individuals. It's not Aguila Saleh, from my point of view. It's not Haftar. It, it's not, I mean, it's not an individual that can be pinpointed as being the cause. There's a amongst society the feeling that they have too much to lose if they give up on this hold of the country resources. And this is the problem. Businessmen, uh, groups in the East, uh, uh, who have, you know, hotel owners, uh, real estate agents across the East have never seen as much money as they have in this past two years. And they think that by giving up this, they will be losing out because the next government is not giving them any signs that their concerns and their aspirations, which you can judge right or wrong, will be addressed. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Nidal Suehli. I'm from uh, D1 Research from Libya. Uh, I just want to ask you about something that was mentioned in an ICG report before about um, countries' finance and resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was briefly discussed about policy consideration of freezing the uh, Libya's asset and taking over a country's finance. Mm -hmm. Now, since then, do you think this is becoming more likely or less likely that this something can, can, be, can be considered, especially that both sides are being, just like the resource, access to resources is very important and it's becoming a very important factor mm -hmm. in the whole crisis thing? Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, there was a lot of buzz and talk in the international community about this, and it was looked into very much, and that's why we mentioned it in the report as sort of a, a phase in, in the way the inter so-called international community, but foreign stakeholders have been thinking about solving this problem. Uh, I don't sense that that buzz is there anymore. I'm not hearing that. I'm not also in the capacity, I'm not an economic expert or an economist. Uh, I don't even, I'm not able to say whether that would be a good solution or not for the country. I hear diplomats that have done, run the numbers and looked at it and they think that it's not a good solution because it would create even more uh, havoc and problems for the country. But there are economists here in this room I know who are better positioned to, to say whether this is a possible and um, welcome option or not. My uh, non-expert uh, judgment is that there's no appetite for it at the moment and it's likely to create more problems. But if uh, others want to jump in, welcome. Radovan. Uh, Radwan Masmoudi with the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy. Thank you for uh, an excellent presentation, but uh, the point I don't understand is you presented a very gloomy situation, you know, economically, politically, security-wise. And then you said we should not rush. 
given that these negotiations or these discussions have been ongoing for over a year now, almost two years, and given that the situation is deteriorating very rapidly, and given that ISIS has been spreading mm -hmm. and controlling 200 kilometers, it would seem to me that we need to rush. We, we don't have that much time uh, to save Libya. And that uh, isn't it time for the international community to impose a solution? Because uh, it seems to me that uh, there is a minority on both sides that is against mm -hmm. uh, a solution. And you know, until when are we going to allow this minority to basically uh, veto any real solution and continue the situation of deterioration? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I think all Libyans will tell you that they want a government of national unity in place. I have not met one, one that has told me otherwise. Um, but there are still a lot of tensions in the country, across the country, about whether they want this one in place or something else. Of course, there are six million Libyans. Probably they have six million ide different ideas on who they and would like to. And different prime ministers. Yeah, <laughs> and different prime ministers. Um, when I say, you know, let's be careful in rushing the process is because, you know, I think that there's a cost-benefit analysis that you have to make. Is it worth pushing forward this lineup in the current circumstances today without a formal HOR vote, knowing that this could create more rifts? Or um, some would answer yes. It's worth doing it because not doing it would be even graver and, and the country would uh, collapse even further. I'm of the opinion that pushing this forward, um, pu what is this? Pushing forward what I see as a presidential council that is currently fragmented internally, okay? Uh, pushing forward a govern lineup that is contested by some members of that political dialogue that originally was backing this whole process. Um, in the absence of, of a formal HOR vote, um, just by relying on a piece of paper with signatures, which, which is something that is being considered, I think that the, it would create more damage uh, in the sense that it would uh, push certain constituencies to move away from supporting this to being against it. Or people who were fence-sitters just waiting to see what happens uh, might be incentivized to oppose, oppose such a diplomatic action. But what we're saying is that to create more momentum and to create more support for this political deal with Siraj, without Siraj, nine, five, ten, whatever number of, pres of members of the presidential council you want, what has been missing are these security arrangements and, uh, and um, steps to contain the, um, the economic drainage of the country. Um, it hasn't taken place throughout 2015, it, it, but it's time to start. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not an excuse, you know, pushing the political process forward and rushing it is not an excuse for not starting these two important things. And even if you think of it in terms of anti-ISIS strategy, I mean, leaving the country to collapse economically, and there's no guarantee that if we do have a government of national unity endorsed, it will be seated in Tripoli. We have no guarantee that the central bank will, uh, will actually be able to uh, transfer funds and control this, um, uh, this drainage. But if we don't take steps to start you know, 
initiate that conversation between uh, rival central bank governors, rival institutions, because it's not only central bank NOC and LIA. You know, you have the uh, state-controlled institution to import medicine, which has been dupli duplicated. You have the telecommunication companies, which has been duplicated. You have all sorts of, you know, state-owned uh, companies that have been duplicated. So if we don't start making those initial informal steps, then, then we're doing nothing to, to contain the economic crisis. And what better Libya for ISIS to thrive in uh, if it's in complete economic disarray? There are those who say that, well, to prevent that, you need a government national unity in place. We're saying, well, maybe you can start already a conversation in order to ensure that you have more factions supporting a government of, of national unity uh, and thereby start reversing this negative trend of the economy. Claudia, just a curiosity. How do you explain this con apparent contradiction between the ur sense of urgency, sense of rush that there is uh, outside of Libya? With uh, talking about military intervention, talking about we, we have no time, we have to face the ISIS, ISIS is coming up, and the lack of this sense of rush that is dominant in Libya, the lack, the lack of, of this sense of uh, this imminent threat. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I think we, we have to remember that throughout this past year, year and a half, there has been a very contradictory narrative circulating in Libya about what ISIS is. And that is still there. I mean, two rival you know, political institutions in Tripoli and Beda and their security allies have been accusing each other of maneuvering this so-called ISIS group, insert, as the minister said. Uh, in Tripoli, they would say that uh, uh, it was the Gaddafi loyalist, Ahmed uh, Dam, uh, and so on, that were funding, maneuvering, telling ISIS people what to do. And they would point to the fact that, uh, you know, ISIS insert is attacking Misratans as a sign that, you know, Gaddafi loyalists hold a grudge against the Misratans and therefore they're, they're pushing uh, ISIS to attack Misrat. Go, go to the other side. And uh, they were accusing uh, ISIS insert of doing the dirty work for the Misratans. And I have a specific case um, that, that shows this perfectly. Um, I was on, in Benjawad following the front line when, when Misratans were you know, trying to take over Sidra and, and attacking Jadran. And um, it was February. There had been just recently an ISIS attack on one of the oil fields south of, uh, south of Sidra. I went, uh, I went to talk to Ibrahim Jadran, uh, who was the commander of the, the petroleum facilities guard that uh, controlled this oil facility, and who had 10 of his men, 10 or 12 of his men, decapitated in that attack. So I asked him, what, who, 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 who attacked? What are they, who are these people? Where are they coming from? He said, oh, they're coming from Neophilia, and I think that the Misratans, you know, told them to come and attack me to do their dirty work. Because we all know that the Misratans want to kick me out of the Sidra area. They don't have enough resources to do it by bombarding me, so they're sending ISIS over to, um, to dislodge me. Following day, I go to Tripoli, and I talk to the oil minister uh, there, and I say, okay, what happened at that attack in that oil facility. 
and he says, oh, it was Jadran who ordered the decapitation of 10 of his own men to make it appear <laughs> to make it appear that this was an ISIS at, uh, attack and by making it appear as an ISIS attack, he's trying to get foreign support for his own position uh, against us so that he can consolidate his authority there, okay? So, so this to say that that narrative has existed since mid-2014, or rather, since uh, early 2015 when we started to see the, the consolidation of authority of ISIS in, uh, in CERT, and it still exists today. And that's a major problem. Thank you. Done. Daniel Sirway from Johns Hopkins SAIS. Uh, I want to pursue this question of international intervention a little bit more in an analytical sort of way. Mm -hmm. Leaving aside Washington, frankly, I think we're not willing. We're able, but not willing. Uh, at least with more than drones, we're not willing. What is your reading of European willingness Mm -hmm. And what is your reading of Libyan receptiveness? Um, first of all, let me say that I think that um, also in the media and what you've been reading about intervene, not intervene, um, is uh, it, it sometimes it tends to inflate sort of two issues. One is what measures to counter radical groups in ISIS in Libya. And another one is the security sector sort of intervention to support the government of national unity. There's no denying that in the past year and a half, year or so, uh, since this UN-led process started, there have been plans to deploy to Tripoli and other parts of the country um, uh, foreign military missions to train uh, Libyan security forces to support the government of national <coughs> unity. My and then the other thing is what to do to counter radical groups. Um, if the two can go side by side, meaning if we do have a government of national unity in place, if we can have deployment of foreign security forces to support this government of national unity and they can train those forces that then can go uh, and try to contain the ISIS threat, fine. But if we don't have that, what happens? My impression is that there's, um, uh, in Europe, um, some, the Italians, for example, seem to be still geared towards making those preparations to support a government of national unity, to help make that, those security trainings, deploy some 5,000 men, uh, but want to see a government in place in order to do that. They're not willing to uh, push for the deployment of men uh, in the absence of a government in place. Okay? Um, there, then you go to the issue of countering ISIS. Uh, I, I, there are other countries that are willing to uh, engage in a counterterrorism action through airstrikes and so on as a means to containing the ISIS threat. Uh, I don't think the, the Italians are capable of doing that in isolation. There's the UK, there's the US. This is where the US, you know, the, U, the US comes in. So I think the, the certain European actors are um, trying to push for the seating of a government in Tripoli in order, so, so in order to have a more sizable military deployment in Libya. 
the UK, maybe the French also in this respect. The Italians seem to me a bit more hesitant, um, but, um, but all of them together are willing to work on a containment strategy for ISIS. But you need to differentiate between the two, the, the two points. Nobody's willing to put combat troops on the ground. Not as far as, far as I know. I mean, maybe others uh, receive different type of information. But the clear, the clear messaging that I get is, you know, it's uh, too politically costly for us to want to send combat troops. What we're, what we're willing to do is partner with local groups on the ground, hope that they can do enough legwork. Uh, what, what we are willing to do is send security forces to help coordinate and train, but not go and take over Sirt or Benghazi, uh, you know, special forces to, to coordinate uh, and to help in the logistics, sure, but not combat, at least not for the time being. Thank you, um, Zach Gold with the Atlantic Council. Thank you for the fantastic presentation. Uh, you noted that regional states need to be more constructive. I was hoping you could perhaps talk more about what they are doing that's deconstructive and what constructive looks like and what we in the US and also our European allies can do to foster that constructive behavior. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, over the past, uh, I, I know Karim also has some views on this. Uh, so please, you, we clash are, are you asking him or me? Okay. <laughs> uh, over the past, uh, you know, year and a half, uh, since the political divides have, have uh, fragmented the country, you know that there are certain, certain countries uh, that have sided more with one uh, or the other side of the political divide. Uh, traditionally, you know, Egypt and the UAE have been seen as those who uh, allegedly support the, you know, Tobruk, Beida authorities and their military allies through uh, General Khalifa Haftar, and more supportive. I'm saying traditionally. I mean, throughout these past, uh, you know, two years, uh, supporting more the Tripoli authorities and their uh, their cause were Turkey and Qatar. Now, at this moment in time, I don't, I have positive signs about Turkey's um, uh, involvement and coordination with the international, with the other major stakeholders over Libya. So I think it's a, uh, it's a, a more healthy relationship at this po point in time. I don't know about Qatar. My impression is that, again, they've been pushing Let's say that certain stakeholders from Tripoli who have gone to Qatar asking for things have come back to Tripoli frustrated. Um, uh, what I don't see is a similar shift from the UAE and Egypt at this moment in time. And this means you know, polit pol in their political decision making and in their uh, uh, covert support through uh, transfer of uh, uh, machinery and possibly also weapons. Um, yeah, I, I have to say I agree 100%. 
the fact that there is a cooling of uh, the, the support of Qatar versus uh, Tripoli, you, you, you could see from the declaration of the Qatari man in Libya, which is Ali Salabi, who came up and declared and said expressly that he's in favor of the, the government of national unity or some form of unity, which uh, would have not happened had Qatar played the same role that Egypt is playing on behalf of Haftar and on behalf of the, of, of the Eastern forces. So, but this, this unbalance has been going on for, for, for quite a while. I think the water the, the has created a problem in the Leon slash Cobbler negotiation is the fact that the, one of the two sides had not only the international economic legitimacy, but had in the figure of General Haftar a, a, a person that believed in the, in, the, in the possibility of a military solution. And that has tilted, in, in, in a sense, the whole, the whole, the whole ne ne negotiation. He has rested his troops for, for, for a while in the last few months, and then, then started again an offensive right to the last two weeks, three weeks. For what purpose? For, under what directions? For what particular uh, goal? It's, uh, these are all questions that, that, that have to be posed, that you have to ask. Is he working for really cleaning Libya from the terrorists and, uh, and, and bringing the government of national unity in existence, and, and, uh, or, or is working against it? Mm -hmm. And if it's working against it, why the Egyptians are following, are supporting him when, when in the open they say that they are in favor of the government of national unity, right and left? I think there's, I mean, there's a, sorry, before I take another question, there's a specific example of where this political positioning of Egypt um, is, is very telling. You know, when Sarraj, is, when Sarraj proposed twice in his two cabinet proposals, uh, when he proposed Mahdi Bargati as Minister of Defense, I'm told Egyptian reaction was not very positive. Haftar sent Bargati a message saying, you will not succeed. And I heard Egyptian diplomats saying, we know that Mahdi Bargati is somebody who Sarraj wants as the defense minister. We know Mahdi Bargati wants to open up to Majlishura Thuwar Benghazi. And we don't like that. Because Majlis Shura Thuwar Benghazi, of course, is an umbrella group that includes also Islamists of different shapes and colors. And the idea of opening up to such a, um, a colorful uh, group of uh, security actors is anathema in, in Egypt. The question there. My name is Gamal al and I work at the International Monetary Fund. I have two questions. The first is, um, in its best sort of scenario, under the current December agreement, what is envisaged in terms of security arrangements for Tripoli such that this um, everybody wanted a government of national accord finds its way to Tripoli and finds sufficient uh, assurances that it will take it will take office there. Mm -hmm. That's my first question. In the absence of any foreign uh, boots on the ground, mm -hmm. that's the first question. The second question is, could you tell me? I'm a little bit at a loss as to why the House of Representatives is still uh, dragging its feet on giving its consent to the second, third, fourth revision of the cabinet and um, 
and, and proposals for the national unity government. Mm -hmm. what, what are the key issues sort of, is it just the Minister of Defense or is it personalities or are we talking about substance as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, when the agreement was, uh, was signed in, in December, um, there were really no concrete plans on how to get to Tripoli. There were working hypotheses. And these working hypotheses were based on assumptions. And these assumptions were that, and, and I'm quoting people who, who, who said that, that about 70% of the security forces on the ground in Tripoli were supportive of the, of the arrival of the unity government to Tripoli. So they thought that they had the majority support of the armed group and that this would be an overwhelming force. So uh, it would scare off, scare away those who opposed it and therefore induce them not to pick up a fight because there was overwhelming you know, support uh, for this. Um, there was also another hypothesis, which was that there would be uh, enough uh, backing from uh, pro-deal Misratan brigades and pro-deal Zintani brigades, which are the two sort of power brokers in the outskirts of Tripoli, that would you know, beef up support and ensure security for the government. Um, so these were working hypotheses, uh, from my point of view, slightly that were not were in contradictory one, in contradiction with one another, and also were uh, excessively optimistic. Um, a lot of the security groups in Tripoli, including the head of the Tripoli Security Unit, would say we are in favor of the government of national unity, you know, if it is regularly endorsed. But what people tended to forget is that if it is regularly endorsed, so, so there was a misinterpretation, I think, of the words that came from security actors in, in Tripoli about their level of commitment and endorsement of the future government of national unity. Everybody had their own conditions for that potential endorsement, either that the government come to Tripoli or that it be recognized by the GNC uh, or that it be you know, recognized by the HOR or whatever. Um, and so it was a, a miscalculation, I think, in December about the actual level of support. And unfortunately, I have to take note that a lot of those security actors that in December were tentatively willing to support the government now, to me, seem to have have uh, backtracked. Backtracked because, because the government didn't come to Tripoli in, this, uh, uh, in these uh, three months, because they were disappointed by the performance of Siraj himself. Uh, they were set aback by his visit to Haftar, escorted by the number two of the Egyptian intelligence. And you know that there's this animosity between you know, pro Tripoli, Misrat, and uh, pro fajr Libya armed groups and, and Haftar. So they saw that as a very negative development. Um, so there's less, even less support, I think, in Tripoli today. Now, with regards to your question on the HOR, why are they still dragging this on? Um, there are several reasons why you know, they, some members of the HOR uh, oppose it. Um, I don't know the exact breakdown of how many do oppose it. A friend compiled a list and said, oh, there are about 90 people that support the government and 70 people that are against it. Uh, other people say that you know, it's a really small minority, the one that opposes it, it's only 12 people. I think, you know, let, let's say more or less half-half or a bit more in favor, a bit more against. Um, 
certainly there's, it's a matter of ego of certain individuals and personal interests of certain individuals, but it's not just that, as I said, it's not, you know, it's not individual, individuals that are the problem. It's, um, um, I think, opposition to Siraj from the get-go. I mean, when the name of Siraj came out, uh, already in Leon's days, members of the of the presidential of the of the HOR did not understand how the name came out. And he was Siraj, as you will remember, is a member of the HOR, so they knew him as a weak personality, somebody who didn't speak that much, and they they just could nobody could explain to them how it came out that this name was proposed. So there was always this sort of negative uh, uh, perception of, of him that, ha that has remained to this day. Um, then, of course, you have uh, the groups that are pro-Haftar and that oppose this government because this government, from their, from their point of view, does not provide sufficient guarantees that um, Haftar will remain in charge and so on. Uh, then you have a group of federalists, uh, separatists, if you want, who oppose this government because they fear that with this government going to Tripoli, uh, they will they will be on the uh, they will be no longer see the economy in the east um, um, uh, benefit from this government, because that has been the case for the past year and a half, that in the East there have been investments, building, and so on. They think that this will uh, not happen anymore, and they think they're going to lose out in, uh, in this political bargain. So I think it's just all these factors. There's also an issue recently about the names of this recent cabinet uh, that was proposed. People take issue, not so much in the HOR, but other, other places, take issue with the, 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 the two people appointed for or nominated for foreign minister and planning minister who are individuals linked to the old regime. One was a, you know, a pro-Gaddafi supporter until the very end of the 2011 war. Um, so there, it's a series of factors that are causing the problems. Um, and of course, you have like factual impediments like, you know, it, it doesn't take much to impede a vote. You just need to storm, you need to storm, a, storm the room or cut off electricity and you can't hold a session. And so that's why we find ourselves now in this very sort of moment of dilemma, what to do. Uh, do you still push for a formal vote over the HOR in session or do you go ahead with a, with a piece of paper with signatures on it? We are of those who think that it's important to have a regular session with a regular vote. If you're not able to, to actually guarantee that that takes place, what guarantees can you provide that you'll be able to manage a much more complex situation? Not the HOR, not a building with 200 people in it, but a country with all the cuts and, and fragmentation that we know of. We have exhausted the time uh, at our disposal. I'd like to have uh, Jonathan Weiner, especially representative, if you want to say two words in conclusion. Uh, the comment. one thing I would note is that. Um, Can you wait for the doctor? Sure. Can you be a mic? Sure. 
In December, when we were trying to get international support for a uh, government of national accord political agreement to be signed in Skorot, we were at a ministerial. We had Russia there. We had China there. Um, we had a, a support from all the regional players and ultimately a declaration in Rome in support of moving ahead to what then became the Skorot Agreement. We received strong warnings not to proceed from the international crisis group. They said, don't do it. There are only bad things will happen. You need to give it more time. It's clear to me that three months later, four months later, three months later, ICG still thinks we should have given it more time and thinks we should give the House of Representatives more time and that we should be doing a number of other things that we have failed to do. And I'm sure we should be doing lots of things that we have collectively failed to do. The world always has been going to hell in a handbasket ever since Adam and Eve met with that uh, snake in the garden. It's always gotten worse, it's never gotten better. And if you take something that's a 30% proposition and multiply it by the next 30% proposition, you're down to 9%. And if you multiply that times another 30% proposition, you're down to what? Um, we keep going, keep going, hmm? Keep going, 2.7, 2.7, and multiply it by now a 10% proposition, we're at not even a quarter, we're at one quarter of 1%. So if you take all the different things Claudia just said uh, are improbable and add them together, it is not possible to have success in Libya. And we should stop what we're doing and leave the Libyans alone. That's not the US government point of view. US government point of view is you take where you are and each day you try to build as best you can with what is to try and nudge things along the right direction from where you are increasing probabilities as best you can. If it's a 0.3%, you can get it to 0.33. Well, that's a 10% increase that you've just done, even if you're only now at one-third instead of three-tenths. So that's what we have been trying to do. Uh, uh, I'm somebody who still believes that having that political agreement in Skorat was a positive thing for Libya. It wasn't what ICG recommended at the time and still has grave doubts about. I tend to believe if we hadn't gotten that at that point, we'd be in worse shape today, not, not better shape. This may be a minority view at this point. Of course, history and time will tell. I know we would have been better off if we'd left Gaddafi in place and his family for decades to come because that's counterfactual to what actually happened. So we can presume the best because that wasn't the choice that was made. As I said, the world's always been going to hell in a handbasket and always will. So every choice we've ever made has always been the wrong one, except for the ones that clearly resulted in victory. So the story's still being told. What I would emphasize is that US policy is one that tries to ameliorate, to bring people together, um, uh, to foster forward movement where you can and as you can. And that's what we're working on. Many of the things that ICG has encouraged uh, to be done uh, and said hasn't been done, actually has been done. Some of them have succeeded and some of them have failed. For example, in trying to bring economic actors together, spent a lot of time in 2014 and 15 trying to do that. With what success? Sometimes they refused to meet with one another entirely. In fact, most of the time. It's merely one example of what's happening behind the scenes. Now, you actually can't always get people who are fighting with one another, as ICG knows as well as anybody, uh, to stop fighting. 
Sometimes they have to fight for a while. We, uh, we've had counsel leave Libyans alone and have them fight until they're completely exhausted and the country is completely bankrupt and they're all sick of the bloodletting and they're sick of fighting with one another and so depressed and so distressed that you'll be able to get things together. We, we've had that advice from people. Um, in response, I say, that was that good for Somalia? Uh, is that going to be better for Libya? That's not the administration's policy. Um, other people have said, um, uh, bring together the Eastern government and the Western government. We can't see them agreeing on anything when they've gotten together without us. They don't agree on substance on anything, other than that they should stay in place for the foreseeable future, even though their own terms and mandates ran out, one in February of 2014, I think is the correct, the correct year, and the other in Oct October 20th or 21st of 2015. But in their point of view, uh, uh, which is, is the same as General Haftar's, we decide, nobody else, we decide how we're going to spend our money. And Ambassador Jones has been very focused on this problem of money, of getting to spend our own money. We get to control the money. Nobody else tells us what to do. We make all the military decisions. Nobody else tells us what to do. We can't be fired. And we're legitimate until the end of time. No one can remove us or change what we're going to do. That's Haftar's position, by the way. It's not a parody. It's his actual position. I'm in charge. Nobody tells me what to do. I make all the decisions. Unlimited amount of money, and I last forever. And if I disagree with what anybody else wants to do, they're gone. Well, actually, Libya can't work that way with anybody taking that position. Napoleon took that position for a short period of time. It didn't work for Europe. And that was at a period of time where things didn't move as quickly as they do now. Uh, Gaddafi had that position. It didn't work, work out really very well for Libya. It didn't, in the end, work out that well for Gaddafi. I don't really want. I don't think any of us would want to go the way he went. So our point of view is the government of the national court is a necessity. That the Skorat agreement was a net good. That aligning the regional players is a positive thing. If you're not 100 percent, you're better off at being 93 percent than 32. That gets into that multiple of probability issue again. Um, uh, and that you work each day as best you can and with such tracks as you can. It's not very satisfying. It's not emotionally satisfying. Um, it doesn't produce instantaneously brilliant results because it's slow and accretive. But you know, if, if Gaddafi was still there, it might look like Syria. Um, and if we all weren't engaged, it might look more like Somalia. I'm not sure, I still think Libya's got a, a shot at being better uh, than Syria, better than Iraq, and better than Somalia, and that's what we're working for. Thank you. Thank you, Rada. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I uh, thank you for your remarks. Essentially, I, I don't think we're that far away in uh, in our in our visions, in the sense that we're not advocating not doing anything. We're advocating doing things, uh, but perhaps with a different uh, order of priorities. We think that, as I said, that the political dialogue and the, uh, achieving a government of national unity is essential for a divided country. But the way we think we can get there is by putting more resources, human and financial, also to ensuring a greater buy-in in this security sector dialogue track and, and greater efforts in the economic track for the purpose of uh, obtaining a solid and uh, workable um, political arrangement for the future of the country. But thank you. Well, thank you all for having come in here, and thanks, Claudia, for her remarks, and please join me in thanking her. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll see you soon.